chapter 9. Uh, Pastor Jim left off at verse 29, so we're going to pick up at verse 30 this morning. So if you'd like to turn there, we will be needing our Bibles this morning. So, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. In light of eternity, status, positions, and titles mean absolutely nothing. But the things that were done in the name of Jesus, that's what matters. Being a disciple of Jesus and following after Jesus is what truly matters in our lives. So often we view discipleship in Christianity as, oh, I said a prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. I go to church once a week. But in Mark 8, 34, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is not a challenge only for those who want to be a super Christian or take it up to the next level. This call is for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. We are to deny our wants and our desires, to deny self-promotion and status, to follow Jesus with our whole lives in a manner fitting of his character. Because as his disciples, we are going out in his name. We are supposed to serve in his name, love in his name, honor him in his name. The Bible doesn't differentiate between Christian and disciple. It's one and the same. The New Testament writers, you weren't a Christian unless you were a disciple of Christ. It's it's the same thing. They they didn't view being a disciple different. What is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who follows after, especially in this time. They didn't go to school to be a disciple. They, They would follow after a rabbi. They would follow after a teacher. They would mimic them. They would learn from them. They would try to intimidate, or not intimidate. Emulate them. Yes, thank you. Words are not coming very well this morning. But they would try to emulate them. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to emulate Christ. We're called to follow after him, to to be his ambassadors in our physical bodies. So being a disciple and being a Christian is one and the same. There's no difference. There's no different levels or statuses of Christian. There's, There's disciples and there's not. You know, I, I, I get to teach this morning, but that doesn't make me any better than you. I, I still have to learn this stuff myself. You know, this is for each and every one of us. Every, every time somebody gets up here to preach, every time you go to teach one of those kids or, or the youth or, or your family, it, it's because that's what you're called to do as a disciple. We're called to follow Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He taught his disciples. He, he taught them what it meant to be a disciple, and that's exactly where we're going to be this morning. In Mark chapter 9, in verse 30, Jesus is teaching his disciples. It says, Then they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples, the last time we saw them, they had been near the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And then from there, Jesus had taken three disciples up on top of a mountain and he was transfigured before them. Then they came down, uh, back down to the other disciples where Jesus healed a, a boy who was demon-possessed. 
And then from there, now we read, from there they passed through Galilee. So they're headed south towards Jerusalem. And these are the last couple months of Jesus' life on the earth. And so he's being very intentional. And his desire to teach his disciples is becoming more and more uh, uh, forefront of his ministry now. He's really making in, uh, steps. He's trying to get away from the crowds, trying to get to a place where he can teach his disciples. And that's what we see here. He knows time is short. Do you believe time is short for us? I mean, you look around at what's going on. I remember 20 years ago thinking, oh, Lord's coming back any year now. And now I look around and I'm like, I'm surprised he hasn't come back. Yeah, except for the sake except for the sake of those who have gotten saved in the last 20 years. You know, but honestly, things are getting worse. The, the birth pains are there. Time is short. And so this is for us as well. But he, the main part of his teaching to the disciples is that the Messiah must suffer, die, and rise again. That is the main portion of his teaching. And as we continue with this passage, that's exactly where Jesus begins in verse 31. <coughs> He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they will not understand, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer, he's going to die and rise again, and they, they, can't, they can't fit it in their brains. Probably one of the reasons why they can't fit it in their brains is because that wasn't their idea of what the Messiah was going to do. And in Isaiah 61, the prophet Isaiah writes that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. This is a, a prophecy about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance on our of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve, and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They're expecting the Messiah to come and be victorious. They're, they're expecting him to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of Israel is going to be reignited, re, uh, that, that God's kingdom is going to come and and, and the, the Roman Empire is going to be overthrown. They're expecting this. This is what they're looking for. They read that prophecy expecting the Messiah to come as victorious, and now he's telling them, I've come to suffer, die, and rise again. And that, they just don't get it. They, they don't understand. I mean, put, it, put yourself there. You're walking with this guy. You, you're like, he, he's got to be the guy that's promised in, the, in Isaiah and Daniel and all that. This has to be him. He's doing all these miracles and signs. And you're walking with him for three years, and he's, I mean, he's walked on water. He's fed 5,000, 4,000. All this stuff's happening, and you're like, he's got to be the Messiah. And now all of a sudden, he says, I'm going to die. What would you do? You'd be broken. You'd be, you'd be like, wait, wait a second. This isn't right. This isn't how this is supposed to play out. And yet, they're too afraid to ask him about it. Now, I remember when I was in school, I had teachers that were like, there is no stupid questions. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of us took that as a challenge, right? Okay. But 
you know, you didn't want to be the kid in school that asked the stupid question. You didn't want to be the no, known as the one that asked the stupid question. So, you know, this could be kind of where the disciples are. Or, or, or remember as a kid, your dad calls you out to the garage. Here, hold the flashlight. And you're holding it. And you're trying. But the tears are streaming down your face because he's been yelling at you because you're not aiming the flashlight right. And he's like, why are you crying? You ain't going to answer that question. You ain't going to ask, you know, well, why are you yelling at me? You know, not that Jesus was mean to the disciples, but they don't comprehend what's going on, so they, they're too afraid to ask. They're too afraid to approach God and, or approach Jesus and ask. James will later tell us if you lack wisdom, you should ask of God. A little clarification would have gone a long way for these guys. But they don't get it. And part of their misunderstanding could stem from the fact that Jesus does refer to himself as the Son of Man. And they would have known the prophecy of Daniel 7. In Daniel 7.13, it says, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the, the people, every race and nation and language would obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And His kingdom will be everlasting kingdom. And, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. You know, another prophecy about the Messiah coming victorious. But Jesus in Mark 10 will clarify this for them. And He'll tell them, The Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus might be just kind of giving them a little bit at a time. Because like us, they're, they're a little dense. They don't get it at first. You know, they, they've heard this prophecy. They've heard that prophecy. They've got questions, but they're too scared to ask. And Jesus just kind of gives it a little, lets it soak in. Gives it a little, lets it soak in. They don't understand what's going on. And they don't understand their role in this whole thing either, as we will see here in verse 33. Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was greatest. You see, I think the disciples only heard, I'm going to die. Because they start arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Almost as if they argued... Who's going to take over when he goes? You know? And, and so, you know, I'm sure Peter, James, and John are like, well, it's got to be one of us. We were taken up on the mountain with Jesus. We're in his little circle. You know, and the other disciples are like, but I, but I take care of the money. You know, but I did this, but I did that. They're arguing who's the greatest. And, and again, they're only concerned about right here and right now. We do that, don't we? We get concerned about, What's happening right now? <laughs> you know, some of us, well, maybe, some of us are waiting for our supervisor to move on so that we can move up to their position. Now, none of us would actually say that we want our supervisor to die and pass away, but some of us are waiting for a new position. We're, we're anticipating the, the time where we get the chance to be the boss. We're anticipating the, the time 
when we can step up to a better pay grade or whatever. We're thinking about right here and right now. And there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with planning. But that's not what the disciples are doing here. They're arguing over who's better than the other person. They're arguing over who's going to take over when Jesus leaves. Who's going to keep this thing rolling forward? You know, because they've done miracles. They went out two by two and did works and signs and 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 cast out demons and stuff. And so, you know, they've all had experience leading this ministry, and they're all going to get their chance to, to be in ministry after Jesus is gone. But now they're talking right here, right now, who's the greatest? And that's what they were arguing about. And they, they were a little scared to tell Jesus that that's what they were arguing about. Now, this is the second attempt of Jesus to teach the disciples that he must suffer, die, and rise again. The first was back in chapter 8, in verse 31, and he will attempt to teach them again in chapter 10, verse 33. But we see that in every attempt, the disciples are only concerned about their ambitions for status and prestige. While Jesus speaks of surrendering his life, the disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. While Jesus counts the cost of discipleship, they count their assets. What is in it for me? While Jesus' eyes are fixed on the cross, they are preoccupied with the question of status. And this begs the question of each and every one of us. What are we concerned with in this life? What drives us? And this, this comes back to discipleship again. Are we a disciple or are we driven by the things of this world? Are we constantly concerned with fulfilling our own lives or what God can offer us or our status in life? A disciple is one who denies themselves, takes up their cross and follows Jesus. A disciple is not one looking for their best life right now. A disciple is not one looking for what God has to offer them or even one who is worried about their status in this life. Jesus said, don't worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life worth more than food, he said? He said, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than him? Can can worry add a single day to your life? And yet these disciples and we get in the same place where we worry about right here and now. What am I going to do today? What am I going to, you know, what am I going to do if they don't accept my, um, you know, you put in a resume for, for a job promotion? What are they going to do if I don't get accepted for that promotion? What, what am I going to do if, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That's what we're worried about. We're, we're, we're focused on here and now. Jesus is like, there's all of eternity to worry about. All of eternity. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God above all else, live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. We don't need to be concerned with anything other than our own righteousness and the things of God. And then trust that God will work everything out. The disciples were not trusting God. They were looking at their own accomplishments. And when Jesus asked them what they had been doing or what they had been arguing about, their silence proved their guilt. And so continuing verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last 
and servant of all. Jesus knew what they were arguing about. And sitting down, probably from sheer exhaustion, from their inability to comprehend things, but Jesus summons his disciples and begins to teach them. And he says, if someone desires to be the most important person, they may, must become willing to be the servant of all. Jesus says, anyone who wants. I, I think I've heard that a little bit before. Anyone who wants. It's kind of the same as the beginning of the call to discipleship. Whoever wants. Incidentally, Kind of the same as John 3.16, whoever believes. You see, Jesus is, a, is saying anyone who has the desire or a strong want for this. Jesus gives an open invitation to salvation and an open invitation to discipleship. But do we want to live this life? Do we want to be a disciple? Well, we want the perks to go along with it, but do we want to give up our desires? Do you want to be a servant of all? The word Jesus uses here for servant refers to a personal devotion in serving or, or serving out of love as opposed to service as a slave or even service for pay. This is something somebody would do out of love for another person. That's the type of servant Jesus is talking about here. In God's kingdom, Jesus flips this idea of servanthood upside down. Being a servant comes out of our love for one another. Just as Jesus will suffer, die, and rise again as a display of God's love for us, Jesus said his disciples must do the same. You all heard of Plato, the Greek thinker? The, the Greek guy? He kind of, yeah, he, he said, How can a man be happy when he has to serve somebody? I would say, How can I not be happy when I get to serve someone? Jesus tells us it's more blessed to give than to receive meaning that happiness and being content comes from serving. And I will tell you in my own life, that has played out more true and more true the older I get. The more I get to be here to serve, the more I get to uh, help people, I, I, I find joy and fulfillment in that. Don't you guys? We do. You see, greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted or the privileged. It's not reserved for those in a position of authority or those who have achieved some special status. Rather, greatness is found in the simple task of serving one another or loving one another. Serving others is born out of our love for God and our love for one another. Loving one another and serving one another go hand in hand. It was said of Jesus that he loved his disciples. He loved them to the very end. And so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet. How many of you have seen that new movie, Jesus' Revolution? That part where we see that, you know, the, the elders are complaining about the dirty feet and stuff. And so the next scene we see all these people lined up and he's washing their feet before they come in. That really hit me. It, it really affected me. Am I being a servant? And, and when I saw that, I was like, that is the true definition of what a servant is. Not necessarily washing feet, but doing whatever it takes to bring people into the kingdom. Serving people into the kingdom. 
loving people into the kingdom. That's what we're called to do. John says that let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Then he goes on to say that this is how God loves us, that he gave his son for us. John says we won't serve others if we don't first love. And when we love, it proves that we know God. This is countercultural. Society tells us, look out for yourself. Look out for your own interests. You don't have to serve people. Just do what makes you happy. Where does that get people? I mean, you look, and uh, I, I saw a, a video, or I saw something about, you know, uh, uh, somebody that was popular, and I don't even remember, it was somebody's, some singer or something, get, Gave up their life the other day. They were not happy. You know, happiness doesn't come from money. It doesn't come from having all the friends. It doesn't come from the status. It doesn't come from who's popular and who's not. True happiness comes from God. And true happiness in our lives comes from loving God and loving others and serving others. Jesus will say, what good is it if someone gains the whole world and yet loses their soul, whoever sa- wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever is willing to give up their life will save it. And that's so true. Are we willing to be a disciple of Jesus? Are we willing to give up our wants, our desires, our, our perceived needs for Jesus? Let him be the Lord of our life. Let him be our guide. Let him... You know, we, we've got a limited picture on this world. But God sees everything. God is all-powerful. He, he knows what's going on. And so why wouldn't we trust him? Why wouldn't we trust him with the decisions we have to make? We don't need to argue about who's greatest. Let him decide. He knows what's best. We don't need to argue about what's going to happen today or tomorrow or who's going to take over or what's going to happen. Let God handle it. Let God handle it. James will say, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Love in action is serving one another, is serving the least of these. Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and then he tells his disciples to do the same. And then in verse 36, we read, he took a little child whom he placed among them, Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does does not welcome me, but welcomes the one who sent me. So Jesus illustrates this serving by reaching for this little child. He takes this child, and the language here says that he wrapped him in his arms and he hugged him. And then he tells the disciples, Whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me. Whoever welcomes. The word welcome here means to receive. But not just like opening the door for somebody. In this context, it means to treat others as significant or highly valued. How much more valued than somebody you hug? 
do we do that, though? I've heard from many people that this is a very welcoming church, and I, I, I'm so excited for that because there, I remember visiting a church, and we did not wear the proper attire. We, we were not dressed the proper way, I guess, and nobody, not even the pastor, came up and said hi to us. You think I went back there the next week? No. But Jesus here, he takes a child. And this child represents the lowest order on the, on the social scale. This child was the embodiment of the least of these. And Jesus welcomes him and treats him as somebody special rather than ignoring him. We can only imagine, you know how it is, kids running around, the disciples are probably like, shh, stop it, stop it. You know? and, uh, and then Jesus grabs one of them. Hey, come here. Wraps him in his arms. Makes him feel like the most important person in the world. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, whoever welcomes one of these little ones welcomes me. Social standing and position only matter while you're alive. It's been said before that on your tombstone, there's your birth date or the date of your birth and then the date of your death. And between the two, there's a, there's a little mark, a dash. Now, if you walk around a tomb, a graveyard, you'll notice everybody's got that little dash. Some might be a little different than others, but they're all pretty much the same. And you know, 200 years from now, you walk up to my gravestone and you see that little dash, it doesn't mean a thing. But what happened in e for eternal purposes is what's going to matter. There ain't going to be anything in that little dash. But what I did in the name of Jesus who I welcomed in the name of Jesus, who I served in the name of Jesus. That's what's going to matter. Jesus goes on to say what you do for the least of these. It's as if you did it to me. Paul adds some clarity. He says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. And that's just what Jesus was saying. You're doing it for me. But not just me. He says, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus tells his disciples, if you know me, you knew my Father. If you want to see the Father, you, you've seen me, so you've seen the Father. The person who receives Jesus receives the one who sent him. Because Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Verse 38, teacher, said John. <laughs> Uh-oh. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can be in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. John speaks up here. I don't know if he was suffering from ADHD. I don't know if he didn't know what to say. But he, he jumps up and he's like, hey, we saw this guy. He wasn't one of us, so we told him to stop doing what he was doing. And Jesus says, do not hinder or prevent somebody doing something in my name. Because whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus said it's impossible to serve two masters. You cannot serve the world and serve God. You must choose because you will hate one and love the other. Kind of the same thought here. Jesus, it seems that the, being a disciple had gone to their heads, though. Because, I mean, they're the 12. They're the chosen ones. In fact, Jesus chose three of them to transfigure in front of. 
So when they see somebody who isn't a part of the 12, or even one of the top three, doing something that they had just failed at, remember, the, the father that brought his son to Jesus with demon possession said, I went to your disciples, but they were unable to cast demons out. And now here this guy is, casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they tell him to stop. Were they jealous? Had it gone to their head? They tell Jesus it was because he was not one of us. Not that he was using your name, Jesus, but he was not one of us. I think this ties right in with the arguing of who's the greatest. And whether he realized it or not, John only furthers the need to be taught by Jesus this lesson. Jesus tells them, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And when they're supposed to be watching out for the leaven of the Pharisees, they're watching out for, and they're more concerned about somebody one-upping them. They were more concerned about status than they were about the leaven of the Pharisees. Because he wasn't one of the twelve, they opposed him. Verse 41, Jesus, uh, truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus doesn't wait for a response or an excuse from John. He just goes on. And he, and he says, anyone who gives you a drink of water in my name because you belong to me certainly will not lose their reward. This is what it means to be a true disciple. Service to others in the name of Jesus because you believe in Jesus. Jesus says this person will certainly not lose their reward. This word re reward means wages. Much like the wages of sin is death, the wages of serving in the name of Jesus, is there's a reward for that. There's a wage for that. Paul says to the church at Rome, you are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And the reward or the wages of sin is death. So, so just as there's wages for acts of service done in the name of Jesus, the opposite is true for wages done sinfully. Wages gained for sinful death. This is fleshed out in much greater detail uh, by Jesus in Matthew 25. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance for the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I, was, when I, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, When did, you, when did we clothe you? When did we see you thirsty? And Jesus will say, because you did it to one of the least of these. See, in the kingdom of God's service, out of love in the name of Jesus, means far more than anything else. 
And John says that you cannot love unless you know God, because God is love. It goes hand in hand. We won't serve others if we don't know God. We won't love others to this. The point here is that status and position mean nothing. What you do is what matters. Is your faith backed up by your actions? Jesus continues, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Pretty harsh. Jesus says, to cause somebody's spiritual shipwreck is so serious that a quick drowning would be preferable. It's almost comical, but the millstone placed around a neck, not like a necklace hanging from the neck, but more like a collar placed around the neck with the intent of dragging or pulling. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, if anyone causes one to stumble, the idea is more than just causes to sin. It carries with it the connotation of tripping up or, or disabling another's discipleship. Jesus doesn't describe how this could be done, rather that there are many ways in which somebody could cause another's faith and discipleship to be shipwrecked. The point here is that everyone, including the disciples of any age, are potentially vulnerable to this. So because this is something to be aware of, Jesus says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, <coughs> cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than, two, than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm that eats them does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says that if there's something in your life that causes you to stumble, cut it out of your life. Take it seriously. Some of you may have noticed that uh, your Bible skipped a few verses there. I want to address that real quick. Those verses, uh, verse 44 and 46 are not in the original, uh, in the oldest manuscripts. Not that there's a problem with our Bible, not that there's, not that it's flawed, not that somebody took them out, because they are, verse 48, uh, at the end of 43 and the end of 45. That's, that's what it is. What happened was a scribe got a little carried away maybe and copied that in there for effect. That doesn't mean that our Bible is flawed. And there's some that will say, well, the Bibles that have that are better, right? Not necessarily. We get the point. Jesus says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Because it's better to die maimed and go to heaven than die with both hands and go to hell. Where the worm that eats them does not die and the fire is not quenched. We get that point. We understand that. And, and so there's nothing wrong with them versus missing. Don't, don't look at that. Don't let somebody tell you that it's bad. It's not. We get the point. The warning that Jesus gives us in 43 through 48 picks up the theme of causing someone to trip. Except the victim is now not somebody else but yourself. How can I be tripped 
by my own hand or foot or eye. You see, the, the danger of stumbling comes not only from the outside, but from the inside. James tells us the temptation comes from our own desires. It entices us and drags us away and gives birth to sin. Which is where Jesus' words of taking up one's cross, denying themselves to come follow him, come full circle. In order to not be tripped up, in order to not be stumbled, we must have God's desires in mind. We must have God's desires and wants in mind instead of our own. Because our own will lead us to be tripped up. Our own will lead us away. Our own will get us to say, no, I'm greater than that person. Our own will keep us from serving one another out of love. Our own desires will cause sin. You don't want to be tripped? Follow Jesus. What he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, take up their cross, deny self, and follow me. You don't want to trip into sin? You don't want to fall into sin? You want, you know, I, I, uh, over the years I've been around Christians and churches long enough to hear guys that are like, oh, I just can't get over this. I just can't get past this sin. Well, Jesus gives us the answer here. Whose desires are you following? Are you following your own? They will trip you up. Then verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire, so have salt among yourself and be at peace. This may sound familiar because in Matthew 13, Jesus says something similar. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So what does Jesus, what's he getting at here? What, what, what's going on? Well, throughout the Bible, salt is a preservative. If you don't have refrigeration, salt is a preservative. It keeps things from putrefying, if you will. It preserves food, especially meat. And if we keep this in the context of discipleship, being salty... We, are disciples who are commanded to make disciples, become a preservative in our role, apart from which society will continue to rot. We understand this. We know. If you're saved here, if you're, if you're a believer, you know that there is life in Jesus Christ. The world has no hope. The world is continuing to rot. We have the hope. And so if we are salty in this sense then we will be spreading out and preserving others. But why does it say everyone will be salted with fire? Traditionally in the Bible, fire in the life of a Christian is meant to prove one's faith. Jesus is saying, you're going to go through trials. You're going to see troubles. Things are going to happen. To James and Peter would tell us that be truly glad because these things come to prove the genuineness of your faith. But Jesus says, you're going to go through these things. These things go on to further prove your faith in me. He said, you're going to be tested. You're going to, be, you're going to have those times where, you're, where your hand will cause you to stumble. You're going to have those times where your foot causes you to stumble. You're going to have those times where somebody else will do something to cause you to stumble. Don't give in to that. 
This is the culmination of why we are to be a servant of all and why we are not to cause anyone, including ourselves, to stumble. Because we're supposed to be salt and light to a dying world. And how can we be salt and light if we're stumbling? How can we be salt and light if we're jockeying for positions? How can we be salt and light to other people when we're only concerned about ourselves? That's what Jesus is getting at here. As disciples, we're supposed to provide the direction for the seeking. Answers for the questioning. Because we know the one with all the answers. We know Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again to save us. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us. So that not only could we find status, so that not... Not that we could find a status or gain position in the kingdom of God, but that we'd we'd be salt. That we would spread His his love, His word. Much as salt flavors meat, much as salt preserves meat, we are to be that in this world. You know, if people look at our church and they're like, oh, looks like a nice country club, what good have we done? If people look at us and, oh, you're no different than anybody else. What good have we done? We're not being salt. We're not being light. In our study today, Jesus taught his disciples what it meant to be a disciple. He taught them that a disciple, being a disciple is not a lofty position, but rather being a disciple is a servant of all. A disciple is one who serves as if they were serving their master. And a disciple is one who doesn't cause stumbling in themselves or others. Being a disciple means that we serve in a manner befitting of the reputation of the one we serve. Jesus calls each and every one of us to be his disciples. If you're sitting here this morning, Jesus is calling you to be his disciple. He's calling you to set aside your desires, your wants, to follow after him. Amen? Let me pray for us. Dearly Father, Lord... This was convicting to me, Lord. I have not served in the way that I was supposed to, Lord. I have not been a disciple in the, in the manner that I was supposed to be. And Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive us when we falter, when we fail, when we stumble ourselves, when we cause others to stumble. Forgive us for that, Lord. Lord, we know that you're the way, the truth, the life. When asked, when you asked Peter if he wanted to leave too, he said, no. Where else would we go, Lord? Where else would we go but your word? Lord, we pray that these words would change our hearts, that that your, your word would penetrate deeply, convict us where conviction's needed, Lord. Lord, we are, we are so in awe and so, so dumbfounded why you would choose to use us, why you would choose to want us as your disciples. But you've chosen each and every person in this room to be your disciple. Lord, may we live that out. May we, may we be your disciples. May we put aside our concerns, our wants, our desires for yours, Lord. Lord, may we be different. May people drive by this church. May people see us out in public and see you instead of us. Lord, we just want you to be known. We want your name to be glorified. So in everything we do, Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified, that you would be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.